This is episode 281 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons help support the show and have the option to contribute directly to programming, as well as access to over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. Find out more and join us today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to try out some of the history you'll learn about here on our show with games, recipes, and crafts straight from the life of William Shakespeare that you can do yourself at home or in a classroom, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Experience Shakespeare is the name of our membership platform here on the show, and inside we offer digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Learn more at CassidyCash.com slash member, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Robin Ritchie of the Tewkesbury Mustard Company, and we make Tewkesbury Mustard in the way that William Shakespeare would be very familiar. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Sweet is the adjective most frequently used about Shakespeare, as if there was something sweet about his personality. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When we look back at the study of Shakespeare's plays, the question always comes to mind about how much we can know about the actual William Shakespeare from the pieces of artwork, plays, and even legal documents that survive about his life. No one has done more study of the plays of William Shakespeare nor understands more about his life in turn of the 17th century England than our guest today, Stanley Wells. Stanley joins us today to share about his latest book, answering the question, what was Shakespeare really like? Sir Stanley Wells is commander of the Order of the British Empire, fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and is former life trustee. He is also former chairman of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and has published extensively on Shakespeare, his plays, including multiple editions of Shakespeare's works for Cambridge, Oxford, and Penguin Shakespeare. I invite you to the show notes for today's episode to explore a further list of Sir Stanley Wells' publications as a great place to learn more about William Shakespeare, including Stanley's latest book that's available now titled, What Was Shakespeare Really Like? Hello, Stanley. Welcome back to That Shakespeare Life. Hello, Cassidy. So glad to have you with us today. It's a great pleasure to be here, too. I'm in Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare's town. So nice to have a little bit of Shakespeare's hometown visit with us right here in the studio. That's exciting. When we interpret the facts that do remain from the 16th and 17th century about Shakespeare, is it possible from those pieces of information to understand what Shakespeare is really like as a person? 
Well, that is very much the theme of my book. Is it possible? Uh, to what extent is it possible, I would rather say? It is possible to some extent, I think. But, of course, there are grey areas and there are even black areas. There are things we can understand about him. We have reports about him from his friends, from her, his friends. We have very little at, in by way of attack on Shakespeare. He seems really to have been quite a popular man. Oddly enough, the first printed reference we get to Shakespeare is the only one that's particularly adversarial. When Robert Greene writes about him, calls him an upstart crow, not a very nice phrase. That is the only insult I can I can think of. That after that, people are very nice about him. There are several sonnets in which his mention, dedicatory sonnets, and they all talk about him as sweet, Master Shakespeare. Sweet is the adjective most frequently used about Shakespeare, as if there was something sweet about his personality. And indeed, for example, he doesn't get into into trouble the way that most of his contemporary dramatists does. You know, where we get Christopher Marlowe, very violent man, uh, being stabbed in, in a tavern brawl, we're told. Ben Johnson killing an actor in a duel. Decker spending many years in prison for debt. Shakespeare doesn't get into trouble like that. He seems to have been quite middle class, actually. Even one might possibly say a little bit boring. There is just one lawsuit in which he, he is mentioned Rather obscurely, we don't know exactly what happened. It seems to have been a bit of a fray, perhaps a little bit of a, of a, of a drunken brawl or whatever. But that's that's the, the worst that people said about him. But on the other hand, he, he's a very popular chap. And, of course, when he dies, there are great and very moving tributes paid to him, many of which are collected in the preliminaries to the first folio, which we're celebrating extensively this year. In relatively recent scholarship about Shakespeare, there has been an effort to use modern scientific approaches like psychology to look back at Shakespeare to try and determine what sort of man he was through the disciplines like Freudian theory, for example. Do you think these methods are able to be accurate so far removed from the time period? No, I don't really think that Freudian psychology is much use. You can't psychoanalyze somebody from the past. Uh, you can draw a few hints, perhaps, but I think there were Freudian interpretations of Shakespeare's life. They were popular, say, 30 or 40 years ago, but I think they've gone out of fashion now, and they've gone out of fashion because it's been realized that they don't provide fruitful results. We've talked several times on our show about Robert Greene's reference to Shakespeare being an upstart crow, and you referenced yeah. that being one of only a few bitter references about Shakespeare. But what are some of the records that survive from Shakespeare's lifetime that demonstrate he was generally well-liked, aside from his you know, funerary outpouring? What other evidence do we have? There are at least three references to him in sonnets by obscure writers, as being sweet of nature. The most important, though, is, is the tribute by Ben Jonson, in which he, he talks about, about him as, and if that's a posthumous report, uh, but, but he pays great, very good tribute to him. And in the preliminaries for the first folio, too, there are several references to him uh, in a very favorable 
and laudatory way as, as a person. And also, he doesn't get into trouble, you see, the way that so many of his contemporaries did. So I think there is good reason to suppose that he was a popular man. He was well-behaved on the whole. Uh, he didn't get into trouble with the law the way that so many of his contemporaries did. He kept out of trouble. And, of course, he became very prosperous uh, in his lifetime. What about Shakespeare's appearance? Do we know what he looked like? What did he look like? Well, we have some visual evidence. There is the engraving in the first folio, Martin Drosette engraving. There is the the bust in Holy Trinity Church, uh, which has been re-examined in recent years, particularly by Lena Orlin in her book about the private lives of, of, of William Shakespeare. And my friend Paul Henderson took some interesting photographs of it, unusually by climbing up a ladder and getting on at eye level with it. Uh, and we reproduce all of the photographs in my book. I have about 20 illustrations in, in my book, uh, and one of them is that. There's also, of course, one or two portraits of not absolutely certain provenance. There is the, the Shandos portrait, which is in the National Portrait Gallery, and there is the one that came to light some uh, 10 or 20 years ago, the Cobb portrait, which I was much involved with when it was first uh, identified as being Shakespeare. And uh, not everybody agrees with my assessment that it is a portrait of Shakespeare, but I still believe it. And it's a good-looking chap, a well-composed face, I would say. Whereas, you know, there is one of his contemporaries, Thomas Nash, is said to have had a great peak of hair. There are descriptions of some of them in a rather satirical way. We don't get that for Shakespeare. It seems a bit conventional, I think, actually. Shakespeare is known as both a playwright and a poet, and these disciplines are separated today. People don't think of poets yeah. and playwrights being the same. But for Shakespeare's lifetime, what was the process of creating a play, and why was there this overlap between being a poet, which we think of as being non-dramatic, and then also writing plays? Well, it's partly because Playwrights were known as poets, and that is partly because almost all plays were in verse. There are very few prose plays from the period. Prose is used in some of the plays, not in all of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, it's used to a varying extent in the plays. All of Shakespeare's plays use verse to a considerable extent. The one that uses most prose, I suppose, is The Merry Wives of Windsor, the, the the somewhat farcical comedy of The Merry Wives. But Shakespeare was a great writer of prose, as well as a great writer of verse. And, of course, the verse is partly public verse. By that, I mean verse which was published under his auspices early in his career, mostly, the, the two long narrative poems, Great poems as they are, they're not particularly popular nowadays, Venus and Dennis and the Rape of Lucrece, and the far more private poems, the sonnets. And I believe those are very private poems. I don't think Shakespeare wanted them to be published. But some of them are intensely personal, including, for example, the one that ends with the words, my name is Will. And during the course of the sonnet, it puns relentlessly on the word Will. Now, when Shakespeare was writing plays, how much of his work was following convention? I mean, was he following a specific format that was industry standard for the time period? Or is the works that we see him creating his own format? Well, his plays are derived, of course, are dependent to some extent 
on the conventions of playwriting in the period, in that, for example, they use soliloquies, which were conventional in the period. Characters reveal themselves uh, in person to the audience direct, through direct address, and they use verse forms in the plays. Love's Labour's Lost, for example, has several sonnets, passages in sonnet form. So Shakespeare was, he was a member of the playwriting fraternity, depending to some degree on the conventions of the period. But because he was also an intensely original writer, he broke away to some degree from those conventions, which is why his plays have the degree of originality and, and the staying power that they have. They're not just any old Elizabethan play. They defy convention sometimes. In perhaps, in, for example, in the intensity of the prose writing, I think of passages such as the terribly moving scene between Blind Lear and Gloucester on the beach in King Lear. These are not by any means easy conventional writing. Stanley writes in his book that Shakespeare was, quote, notoriously fond of puns and wordplay, end quote. Stanley, what are we able to tell from Shakespeare's comedy plays about his sense of humor? Well, in the first place, I, let's say that the puns are not only are not confined by any means to the comedies. He uses serious puns quite often, not simply in order to to raise a laugh, but sometimes very bitter puns. I think we can tell. One of my chapters in my book is devoted to his sense of humour. What made Shakespeare laugh? Uh, and we no doubt one of the things that made him laugh was was verbal humour but also a visual humour, the humour that we get with, for example, the interview in what was probably his first play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, the, the scene with Lance and his dog, which is which depends partly on the presence on stage of a dog. <laughs> Not very common in the plays of any period, I would think. He had a very keen sense of humour, uh, dependent partly on wit. Uh, you get the great love combats if love's labor's lost or in much ado about nothing between beatrice and benedict for example but also up comedy of situation when i for example in much ado about nothing when beatrice and Benedict separately hear, overhear themselves being talked about and, and come out of hiding when Beatrice comes out of hiding and speaks, interestingly, a sort of sonnet, a partial sonnet, what fire is in mine ears, she says as she comes out of hiding after she after her friends have been talking about her in a way that makes her realise that Benedict is in love with her. It's very subtle and, and, and very amusing, a witty scene. Well, in addition to reading the rest of your book and exploring it further, which we will place a link to in the show notes for today's episode, what are some of your favorite books and resources you can recommend we use if we want to learn more about what Shakespeare was really like? Well, there are the biographies. I think the best biographies are, are those of, of Sam Schoenbaum, S. Schoenbaum, as he always published as The Documentary Life. Uh, and the compact documentary life. Those are they're somewhat dated now, perhaps, but not much has been discovered in the meantime. Much more recently, there is the book by Lena Orlin that I referred to, The Private Life of William Shakespeare, which is mostly concerned, I would say, with his relatives and his environment, with his Stratford environment. Those are two of the books, at least, that I would be happy to recommend to anybody to read if they wanted to know more about Shakespeare. 
We will place links to both of these books in the show notes for today's episode, along with a direct link to Stanley's latest book, What Was Shakespeare Really Like?, all in the show notes. So stay tuned for the URL to find that. Now, Stanley, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England (laughs) tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Yeah, well, I I think about this. I, I think... Over the years, one of the books that has meant most to me is The Collected Letters of John Keats. Keats was a great reader of Shakespeare, a great fan of Shakespeare, and a deep understanding. He writes better about Shakespeare than most people do. But he was also a wit. His book, his letters are full of, of witty remarks about the contemporary scene. They're also deeply moving in his ruminations about his own life, about his love, particularly for Fanny Braun. I think Keats's letters would be a jolly good book to have if one had only one book in sight. I think that's an excellent selection for your Desert Island book. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Ah, that's a secret. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm doing, I'm I'm hoping to, to compile along with Paul Emerson, who collaborated with me on a recent edition of the Sonnets, which we think is quite an an important edition. We're also working on an anthology of selected passages from Shakespeare, but that's a bit uh, under wraps at the moment, the details of it. We'll only tell a few thousand listeners. Stanley Wells, it is an honor and a privilege to speak with you today and to learn from someone I consider to know the most there is about William Shakespeare and get to know a little bit about what Shakespeare was really like. Thank you so much for sharing this history with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lovely to see you. Bye. I've gathered up visuals and artifacts that go along with our conversation today, including images of both the Shondos and the Cobb portrait, as well as samples of the sonnets that Stanley mentions, and even more information about that one legal scuffle Shakespeare was involved in with the drunken brawl. If you'd like to explore these extra tidbits related to today's show, as well as find links to the research and resources we talk about today, be sure to stop by the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 281. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 281. To really get your hands on the history we discuss in our show and make your own 16th century Tudor soap balls or play a game like Naughty, which shows up in Two Gentlemen of Verona, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Members of our show get access to a library of hands-on history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Each kit comes with a video tutorial, supply list, and step-by-step instructions that let you complete the activity at home or in your classroom. Each kit coordinates both with Shakespeare's plays and with specific episodes of our show, so it really enhances not only your study of Shakespeare's plays, but you get to hear from some of the world's leading experts while you're studying it. If you are a Shakespeare educator or you just love diving into the 17th century and getting to try out some of the history for yourself, then learn more about being a member and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. Patrons of That Shakespeare Life get 40% off their membership, along with insider access to the making of our show, including over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. Patrons get to suggest topic ideas, get sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and even submit their own questions to be asked during an interview. If you enjoy learning history here with us each week and want to play a direct role in supporting the work we do here, then you can sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. 
That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.